0: Welcome to Real Decarbonization, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This series of mini pods accompanies my new book, which is called Real Decarbonization: How Oil and Gas Companies Are Seizing the Low Carbon Future. On today's show, I have a really interesting guest, I learned so much from Arnab Dada, who's senior counsel at Employ America. So he received his law degree from George Washington University Law School, and he also has an MS in Foreign Service from Georgetown University. Before he started Employ America in 2020, he worked as a legislative fellow for senator from my home state of Colorado, Senator Bennett. And he was a law clerk on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You can learn more about Arnab in our show notes and more about Employ America in our show notes. I learned a lot from this conversation. I hope you do too. Here's my conversation with Arnab Dada. Arnab Dada, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm uh, looking forward to jumping into this topic with you because in my book, I make a case that oil and gas companies and leaders can and should be engaging with a wide range of stakeholders. And when I met you, I thought, oh my gosh, here's a real opportunity to have different kind of conversation around labor and around the oil and gas industry. So I'm hoping you could just introduce us by telling us a little bit about your work with Employ America and how you got involved in oil policy.
1: Absolutely. Well, yeah, th- uh, thank you again for having me. Um, so at Employee America... We're a research and advocacy organization that fights for full employment, so we really strive for an economy that has tight labor markets and and rising wages. A lot of our focus over the past three, four years has been on the Federal Reserve, on its policy and personnel, as well as a program on fiscal policy that is targeted towards increasing employment, increasing wages, and job quality. And so, how we got into oil policy over the past couple of years, in wake of the COVID recession, we've really seen experienced this incredible jobs boom. We haven't had as swift a recovery like this uh, following a recession in in quite a few recessions, and that's a really good thing. But there's also this inflation that we're experiencing, and as an organization that advocates for full employment and keeping kind of this jobs boom going. One of oil prices and an oil price shock presents one of the biggest threats to the economy. We really are coming at this from, I think, two angles. One is more broadly just focused on inflation generally. One risk to the economy right now is that the Fed, under a lot of pressure to address inflation, really goes overboard and induces us into a recession. And we're trying to find as many avenues outside of the Fed's blunt tool of interest rate increases to impact inflation. And because oil prices both have an enormous impact on people's pocketbooks, but also translate and pass through to other sectors of the economy, one way we can really mitigate inflation and and lower it is is by encouraging oil prices to stay low or at least stable. And so that's one piece of it. The second, and maybe in some ways more direct piece, though, is that oil shocks are pretty harmful to the economy and tend to cause recessions themselves. And so to the extent that the government can take action today to prevent future oil shocks, that is going to increase the chances that we can keep this big job boom going. And so that's kind of really how we got involved in oil policy.
0: This is so interesting because in the work that I do, and then a lot of the audience of this podcast do, we think about these myriad roles that u s. domestic oil and gas play in geopolitics, in energy affordability, in um creating prosperity around the world. And now, you know, even in these the, these arenas of international security, But what I've never thought about before is this importance of a stable oil price to full employment and the economy. And so I really appreciate that you brought that up. And and I want to just take it to the next, like the next point of the conversation, which is what this means for labor because, and, you know, and full employment because labor in itself is considered sort of, you know, like a lefty political arena, which doesn't always, um, isn't always true, but that's sort of how it's caricatured and out in the world. And then, you know, oil and gas is caricatured as sort of this right, uh, you know, issues of the right. And um, they can both be very polarizing topics. But to me, this idea of finding common ground around economic stability, around full employment, maybe there's some interesting ways to work together. Can you talk about what, from your Point of view from from your vantage point at Employee America, what are those opportunities for oil and gas and labor to collaborate?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I should um you know I, sh- I should specify like while in a lot of ways where well, we align with with labor and, and support um, unions and and a lot of union issues, we don't really advocate directly for unions. And so, but I I do think kind of more broadly. If we're thinking about how the economy is going to progress over the coming decades, there's obviously going to be and should be a lot of investment happening in decarbonization. That is important necessary investment that has to continue. But there's always a risk with these kind of huge macro changes that it'll be painful and and create a lot of volatility. And I think we've seen just over the last year, really, even just in wake of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the enormous political and economic costs that arise from that volatility, specifically in the case of oil prices, where when they go up, it hurts everyone. It is unlike most other inputs in the economy, where people can reduce consumption somewhat when other prices increase. That's not the case with oil in a lot of ways. People need it to go to work and, and for the economy to function in a pretty unique way. And so I think the when I think about kind of a full employment economy and groups that care about that, including labor, potentially collaborating, I think it It needs to be around this frame of we all have an interest in reducing volatility and everyone's, you know, to some extent, there are there are ways that this can be beneficial to everyone. There's things that all groups might have to give up to some extent, including oil companies. But I think to the towards that goal of minimizing volatility, we can really try to build an interesting strange bedfellows coalition as we kind of continue on this path towards decarbonization.
0: Yeah, so a couple of interesting things you brought up. One, it is interesting to think about, you know, other commodities. Like eggs are particularly pricey at the moment. Many of us, for many reasons, can avoid eggs, but your point that there's just this foundational, I like to think of it as like the almost literal lifeblood of the economy of the way oil moves around, it's just it's its role is just different and central. It seems to me that at the federal level there's a couple of levers that federal policy can play in ensuring that there's the kind of oil abundance that allows for stability, price stability. And of course there's just the ability to drill, you know, whether it's onshore or offshore and move product around the country through pipelines. Well, one thing you've talked a lot about is is use of the strategic petroleum reserve as a way to create some price stability. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about why that's important and also maybe why it's controversial if it is, because I actually don't know. And I think it would be really interesting to hear, you, to hear your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there's a couple of things. I'll start with with the second question, which is why it's controversial. There tends to be skepticism in a couple of ways about the SPR, regardless of whatever the activity or action it's undertaking in, that it can really impact the global oil market. You you tend to hear this, that even President Biden released about 180 million barrels of oil, 1 million barrels per day. And one of the criticisms you tended to hear from folks was, you know, the oil market is 80, 90 million barrels of oil per day. How is you know 1 million is just a drop in the bucket? And I think the, the point that that misses is that commodity prices are really set at the margin. And so over the past couple of decades, it's really just you know, an imbalance of 500,000, 1 million, maybe 2 million barrels that drives these huge swings. And so to the extent that you can even impact it at that margin, you can actually have quite a sizable effect on the price of oil. Another criticism I think that people come with is that the SPR was really intended to be a national security asset. It, it should only be used for, for those purposes. And it this isn't really about managing price. And I think those criticisms are a little bit confused, at least. You know, for starters, I think. If if a, a Russian invasion of of Ukraine of an ally, you know the first in, you know first kind of war we've seen on European soil in in quite some time, doesn't necessitate the use of this emergency reserve. I'm not sure what type of national security threat would. But also in the SPR statute, there is a a explicitly contemplated role that acquisition for the SPR should have certain market effects. And those include things like boosting domestic oil production and incur- and increasing our security um, in that sense. So this really was intended, and in, at least with respect to the acquisition power, to have the impact of increasing domestic production. And so what we've really been advocating for is for the SPR to engage in fixed price contracts, including through forward contracts and put and through the sale of put options so that producers can take those contracts and then invest, knowing that they will be at least somewhat insulated from the super cycle dynamics that have really plagued the industry for the past couple of decades. And one major asset that the SPR has that you don't really have a lot of places, is it has like quite considerable storage capacity. And so to the extent that you can use the acquisition power to help producers produce more and invest without some level of risk of uh, volatility, the more likely we are to kind of unlock a lot of the production potential we have.
0: I like this idea of thinking of the SPR in those terms, in addition to security, as as ways of increasing domestic production by de-risking those investments can you translate that further to full employment just back to your mission because i'm guessing you might get a little heat for for taking on this topic in the context of promoting or encouraging domestic oil production when it's fashionable to want to decrease domestic oil production so uh, can you translate for us or talk about how you translate that to to your skeptics how does that translate to full employment
1: yeah absolutely so i think i i mean again to to start off with i think to reiterate if we let oil prices you know if we don't manage this as a as a problem if we don't manage this volatility where liable to a recession on the upside risk when when oil prices go to 120, 130, 140, we're more likely to kind of have the economy go into a recession. And then on on the kind of downside, if when prices crash again, you tend to have less political will to decarbonize, you see more people engaging in purchases of gas guzzling vehicles. And so it's not just that we want to boost domestic oil production for the sake of it. It is really about reducing that volatility because at both sides of it, we end up kind of hurting our our economic and political goals. And so that's kind of that's one big piece of it. I think another thing is, if let's say every person, every driver in America said tomorrow, "I want to buy an EV," we would not have enough EVs. Um, we don't have enough lithium. We don't have enough of the inputs that we need to meet that supply goal. And so even as we decarbonize, oil is still going to be pretty important to the economy. And to the extent that that demand is there, I tend to think it's better for us to onshore as much of that as possible where we can kind of control it within our jurisdiction. We have, we have higher standards for um, things like methane emissions or groundwater usage. We can we can fold those standards and even better standards into some of these contracts that I've been talking about. So one of the things that we proposed earlier um, in the the first half of last year was that you can use this acquisition authority and say to producers, look, we're going to give you certainty. We're going to sell you a put option at a price where regardless of what the price is at that spot moment, you'll be able to sell it to us and know you can take a profit. But in return for that, We're going to actually require some higher standards or at least the best standards on some of these environmental impacts. And to me, that's a better trade-off than it being produced offshore in other countries where some of these standards, some of these environmental standards, some of these labor standards aren't really as strong. As long as people are demanding oil, it's going to be produced to some extent. And I think if we can produce it here in more responsible ways, that's better.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I always think that the the best, cleanest, most sustainable and in all of of the senses of the word molecules are produced in North America. And I, I really do like your idea of using the purchasing power of the federal government to lock in those expectations of domestic producers. And really, through something like that, likely just raising the expectation bar across creating a new floor for um, sustainability expectations. Can you tell us how your proposals are being received and do you see momentum? What's the status of these ideas now?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I should give a little plug for our our website, www.employamerica.org, where you can see we've done a lot of continued advocacy on on this idea of the DOE selling put options and engaging in other types of kind of market contingent acquisition so it can stabilize prices and, and improve the investment outlook for domestic producers. So where it is now is near the end of last year in the, in the last quarter of last year, the Biden administration and the Department of Energy actually finalized a pretty groundbreaking rule. And what that did is it's a a very minor change in the regulation, in the acquisition regulation that allows the Department of Energy to engage in fixed price contracts. And that really just unlocks a, a lot of creativity and a lot of flexibility for the SPR's toolkit for acquisition. And so what we'd like to see now is the Biden administration at the, I think it was near the end of last year, announced the pilot. And they were going to start piloting different methods of acquisition. One of the things that the president said he wanted to do was basically implement a, a soft floor where if the price fell to a range of 67 to 72, this is for West Texas Intermediate, if the price fell to that level the SPR would start purchasing to really stop it from falling further and show producers that they were kind of committed to to keeping prices at that level for for them to keep investing. We're supportive of that effort, but I think from our perspective, the the best version of this is if the Department of Energy starts piloting other forms of acquisition that tie these fixed price contracts to capital commitments – and so we'd love to see the Department of Energy in the future say, "We're going to sell a put option with a strike price uh, somewhere, somewhere in that range, whatever ends up being appropriate as the economists and energy folks decide. We're going to sell puts at that exercise price and have um, producers come and purchase them if they commit to increasing their capital commitments above what they were previously planning." And so, to the extent that we can, kind of. Push Department of Energy to do that. That's what we're hoping
0: for. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, this this work you're doing is really novel, and I I love hearing about it. One last question for you, um, Arna. Here we are, early in 2023. The world there's a lot of um tough politics and an economic outlook in the world. But I have gotten to know you to be a forward thinking, optimistic person. What what are you looking forward to or what are you optimistic about in the year
1: ahead? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. It's a nice sunny day in Washington DC today, so it's nice to be optimistic. <laughs> I think there's a couple of things. I feel like there's a I'd say 3 things. First, there's really a paradigm shift that's come following COVID that the federal, you know, that the federal government does need to take a more active role in encouraging and directing the market towards positive investment outcomes and and towards, you know, onshoring more production of critical industries here. And I think that presents a lot of opportunities for our type of work. I think the second thing is after the Russian invasion and prices shooting up, I think people both in on the left and I mean, traditionally on the left, who may have seen themselves more aligned with some of the keep it in the ground type movement folks, I think they've really gotten, come to a different different uh, perspective on this. And they really see that, at least in the short term, we can't just expect the oil industry to die. We can't just expect to keep all of this in the ground. We're going to need to keep using oil to some extent, and we should be finding ways to do that responsibly, and in a way that supports kind of all kinds of communities and, and all kinds of positive outcomes. But that, that has shifted quite a bit. And so I'm I'm happy to see that. And then I think the third thing, and probably the most directly aligned thing to, to our conversation, is that this pilot at the Department of Energy is happening. And I happen to know, like they're they are committed to, to doing this in a constructive way. And the administration is committed to action that will boost domestic oil production. And I think if you are a creative and a pragmatic oil producer, this is a really good opportunity for you. I think the, the first iteration of that pilot didn't end up following through on it. And they didn't end up purchasing at the end of it because the bids weren't quite what they were looking for. And that's good because the Department of Energy is building operational readiness But I think there will be oil producers who can look at this and see that the Department of Energy is earnestly trying to do something positive, and hopefully they'll take them up on it. And you'll see some some energy, no pun intended, some uh, energy behind engaging in some of these contracts and boosting our production outlook. So that's what I'm optimistic about.
0: I love that. That was right on theme, which is that there's opportunities for new paradigms, new conversations, new solutions, and we really just have to show up in different proactive, optimistic ways. So Arnab, thank you so much for joining me on the Real Decarbonization Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure.
0: That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Arnab for joining me and for teaching me a lot about really complicated stuff in a very digestible format. I hope that you found some interesting takeaways as well. And if you like what you're hearing, please take a moment and rate us. It helps other people in the oil and gas industry find the Real Decarbonization Podcast. You can learn more about my book at realdecarbonization.com. And if you want to work with our amazing team at Adam and Teen energy. you can find out more about us at energythings.com. i'd like to thank adon rubio who makes all podcast things possible. until next time, i'm tisha schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity and good health.